Well, this morning is a little bittersweet for me. I'm excited to be speaking with you, looking at the Word of God with you this morning. But this is the last time that I will be doing so. It's a great adventure. So I'm going to get booed off the stage. So it is a little, little sad. Um, last week will be our... Um, our last Sunday at the Great Adventure with you all. So we will miss you very, very greatly. Um, Mark chapter 11. So yesterday when I ran through this for a practice, um, I timed it and it took me an hour and 20 minutes. So If it feels like I'm rushing this morning, it's because I'm rushing. Mark chapter 11. Chapter 11 begins uh, the Passion Week of our Lord. So this is the last week of His life. Um, it's the Sunday before the Friday of His crucifixion. So that would make it what day? What event? Palm Sunday, correct. So Palm Sunday, we have the triumphal, triumphant, uh, triumphal. There we go. Entry. So if you would look at Mark chapter eleven, verse one, with me, and let's read it. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied." on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and he will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And someone who was standing there said, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him that what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks uh, on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before them followed, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray real quick. Father, I pray that you would uh, reveal yourself to us this morning as we look in your word. Um, as we rejoice and we look at you as the coming king, as the true Messiah, um, that we would be uh, amazed by your power and your grandeur uh, and the worth that is due your name. We love you and I just pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us and convict us um, this morning through your word. Pray this in your name, amen. So they had come from Jericho. If you remember last week, uh, Jesus was in Jericho and he had healed uh, Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. So they've come through from Jericho and they went through Bethany uh, and Bethphage um, uh, is believed to be a little north of Bethany there. And they're heading into Jerusalem. Now it's Passover week, uh, the Passover is coming, so Jesus would not be the only one 
traveling to Jerusalem. There would have been many, many people traveling to Jerusalem. And so the city would have been uh, rather full at this time uh, with people traveling. And uh, so this is where we see uh, the scene for the triumphal entry. And first I want to touch on two miracles that we see here in these first two verses because I don't want us to miss them. Because while they may seem small and insignificant, um, they really uh, say something incredible about who Jesus is and his power. Um, and, and, and it touches on one of the themes, again, that we see in Mark, Jesus as the Son of God, as, as God himself. The, the first one is that he has power over space and time. And so we see that Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem. He tells two of his disciples... Uh, you go ahead into this village, and as soon as you enter the village, you're going to find a colt, a young donkey, and it's going to be tied up. You untie it, and you bring it to me. If anyone stops you, just tell them that I have need of it, and they'll let you go. And so the disciples go, and sure enough, what happens? Exactly what Jesus told them. So this is, this is more than just Jesus knowing the future, isn't it? It's more than just Jesus knowing what was going to happen because outside of where he was physically, he knew what was going on in the world around him. He knew where that donkey was going to be. He knew what the people were going to say to him. An incredible display of his power over time and space to know exactly where this colt was going to be tied up. And I think that um, the fact that these disciples found it, untie the donkey, tell the guy, oh, uh, the Lord has needs of it, we'll bring it back. And he's like, okay, that's fine with me, is a miracle in and of itself as well. Because had I been the owner of the donkey, I'd have been like, yeah, right, guys. Good one. But no, they say, yeah, the Lord needs it, we'll bring it back, promise. And he's like, okay. The second miracle we see here is his power over nature. Christ says that you would find a colt that had never been ridden before. So this was a young, unbroken donkey, and an animal that is notoriously stubborn even when it is trained. But the Lord takes this colt, they put their cloaks on it, and he rides it. There's no bucking, no rodeo, there's no planting the feet in the ground, I'm not moving. The animal just obeys what the Lord wants him to do. The same Lord that we have seen healing the blind, the same Lord that we saw calm the oceans, has power over his creation because he's the one that created it. And so we see again a display of power over his creation. And second, I want to look at the significance of this event. Matthew tells us in a parallel passage that this took place to fulfill a prophecy um, that is found in Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. And so we see that this event takes place so that Christ can fulfill this prophecy about himself. 
that He is the coming King for Jerusalem. And He's going to come to them riding on a donkey. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? An incredible fulfillment of a prophecy from hundreds of years before. And second, I, don't, I, I want to um, look at the significance of, of what the people are doing, what the people are saying, what, who the people recognize Christ as. If you look at their words again in verse 9, they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They are proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. That He is the coming King from the line of David. Again, and this is Passover week, so there's probably a lot of people in this city witnessing this. And one of the other parallel passages, it says some of the people say, Who is this? What's going on? And they say, It's the Lord. This is Jesus who's done miracles. He has come. Luke 19, it says they're saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So put yourself in the position of these people and maybe more specifically the disciples. What do you think they thought was about to happen? What had the disciples been waiting for? Feel free to answer. Any? Taking over from the Romans. They thought their king was here, didn't they? They were waiting for someone to come and save them from the oppression of the Romans. They were waiting for a king in the line of David and they believed that he was here. And he was here. This was their king. This was the king from the line of David. This is what in the last chapter James and John had just been talking about. Lord, can we sit on your right and your left? Shortly when you throw, overthrow the Roman Empire and you're sitting on the thrones, can we sit on your right and your left to be your right and left hand man? So I could just see the disciples thinking, man, here we go. Here we go, guys. This is going to be awesome. Even though shortly before he had told them very plainly, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over this to the, the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to flog me. They're going to kill me. I will be dead and buried, and then in three days I will rise again. And they say, what? What are you talking about? I'm not sure you could get more plain than that. But his time had come. One of the themes that we've seen throughout Mark is Jesus hushing people. You know, don't tell anyone. Be quiet. Don't tell them that I'm the Lord. Don't tell them that I healed you. But today, he doesn't do that, does he? His time had come. He was being proclaimed as the Messiah, and he didn't stop the people. In fact, in Luke, we see that the Pharisees get upset, and they say, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. And he says, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones will cry out. In other words, the Pharisees had come to Christ and said, Jesus, man, this is inappropriate, all right? I'm not sure if you're catching what they're saying, but they think that you're the Messiah, and you need to stop this. And in effect, Jesus says, no, yeah, they're, they're right. You know, I could, I could tell them to stop, but then the rocks will cry out, and I don't think that you'll feel any better about the situation. Right? 
my mind immediately, how many of you have seen Tangled? And she's like cleaning the house and making a dress out of the curtains. And then all of a sudden like rats and squirrels and birds start coming and flying and helping her. For some reason that's what I thought of when I thought of rocks like dancing and singing. Um, But he says, no, they're right. I am the Messiah. I am the King. And if these stop, then my creation will sing my praises. But what's so interesting about this event? It's the coming king, right? The God of creation. The triumphal entry. Probably looked uh, something like this, right? It's the triumphal entry. Yeah? This is what we expect, right? When a king comes in power and glory, pomp and circumstance, gold carriages. But no, that's not what happened, was it? looked a little something more like this. There were no chariots. There was no palanquin. There were no royal robes, no crown, no military entourage. He came humbly, riding on a donkey. Now in this picture, I don't know, we're only speculating here, but there's a... Roman guard standing nearby and I thought to myself can you imagine if there were Roman guards standing by and there probably were what they were thinking dude get a load of this guy it's their king he's riding on a donkey Woo! we're pretty scared right I mean even when they brought him to Pilate And Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes. Pilate says, I don't find anything wrong with him. What do you want me to do with him? You want me to crucify your king? Obviously, the Romans didn't seem to be too worried about this man. But what's so incredible that Five short days from this event, the cries were going to be drastically different, weren't they? There was going to no no more, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Instead, we find the people crying, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Again, Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And they answered, we have no king but Caesar. Their king had come. And as we've seen throughout the book of Mark already, they have rejected him. They have missed him. Verse 11, it says that he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late and he left and went out to Bethany with the twelve. In Luke it says that as he went out that he looked over Jerusalem and he wept over it. And he says in effect, Oh Jerusalem, if only you had recognized that I had come. Only you had recognized what time this is and realized who I am. It's 
one of the two places in, in the New Testament where we read that Jesus wept. One's Lazarus and one's here over, over Jerusalem who was rejecting their Messiah. So he looked over the temple and we'll find shortly what his impression of his first looking at the temple here was. It's interesting because we're about to read how he cleanses the temple. And a lot of people think that you know, Jesus came into the temple and all of a sudden it was just like this rush decision of anger. But he had been there the day, the day before. He'd already seen it. He had already seen the corruption. So what they do? They leave. They go to Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem. Um, this is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And uh, we find in John 12, a parallel passage, that they in fact were staying with them. So... Verse 12, the next morning they get up. The following day they head back to Jerusalem. Verse 12, on the following day when they came to Bethany, he was very hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find uh, anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples heard it now this is a very interesting passage isn't it this seems somewhat uncharacteristic of Christ Um, we'll see later that the fig tree in fact withers Um, so this is a miracle uh, and it's the only miracle that we can classify as destructive for lack of a better word. But it's very interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus comes to this tree expecting there to be um, fruit, maybe, and there's not. And yet, it says right there in the passage that it wasn't the time for figs. So why did Jesus expect there to be figs if it wasn't time for figs? Well, It was not the season for ripe figs, that's correct. But it was the beginning of the season. There were leaves on the tree, so that means that growth had begun. And so coming to the fig tree, he should have found something similar to this. Leaves on the tree, as well as little buds, right? Fruit doesn't just grow overnight, it takes time. And so coming to the tree... Most commentators agree that there should have been at least early buds of the fig fruit, which are edible. You can eat them. It um, founds nothing but leaves. But there's, a, there's a, de- a deeper meaning to this miracle, I think. There's not uh, a coincidence that it is lumped here uh, between the cleansing of the temple um, and his sorrow for the nation of Israel. Because I believe that this tree is um, a symbol. Later we'll see that, that Jesus uses this miracle as an opportunity to teach the disciples. Uh, but I also believe that this tree represents the nation of Israel. That just as the leaves gave a false appearance of growth, so that the, re- so, um, 
the religion within the nation of Israel gave a false appearance of spirituality. But both had, neither had true fruit. So Jesus, finding this tree without buds, knew that this fig tree wasn't going to produce that year because there were no buds. And it was the same with the religious leaders. And we've seen that clearly throughout the Gospels, that they care more about the appearance of things and about themselves and their power than they genuinely do the people, than they genuinely do God. They had set up all these rules and these rituals and they had lost the truth of their relationship with God the Father. And that we see that no more clearly that when the Messiah actually comes, they're so blinded they miss it. These men that were supposed to know the law and know the Word and know the prophecies, they were being fulfilled and they're missing it because they're so self-absorbed with their power and their rules and their rituals. They're just going through the motions. And when this man comes and threatens their way of life, questions their empty religion, instead of seeing their sin, their faults, the error of their ways, what do they do? They hate Him. They seek a way to destroy Him. And if this is the state of the religious leaders of the people, what hope had the people? No wonder Christ wept at the state of His people, of the nation of Israel. And what's so sad is this is not a foreign concept to us today either, is it? So much of the modern church, of modern Christendom, suffers from this exact same thing. We see empty religion. We see the appearance of godliness when the, the true focus is self. If Christ came and He walked among our churches, if He walked among the great adventure church, what would He see? What would He say? Would He weep for us? Are we going through the motions? If Christ came today, would we miss it because He spoke contrary to our traditions and our rituals and the way we think church must be run? Or we, would we be so in tune with the Spirit that we would recognize that our Savior was here? Are we walking with the Spirit? Is God within us? Is He using this body to teach us, to draw us to Himself, to mold us, to shape us, and then flowing out of us to the world around? Do people see Christ within us? Or do they see empty religion, hypocritical Christians? So Jesus goes on ahead, and they head into Jerusalem, and He goes straight to the temple. So verse 15, let's read. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, it is, not, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So what's happening here? Christ enters the temple. 
And he gets upset, doesn't he? Let's not beat around the bush. He's upset. He's angry. But like we said before, this wasn't a rash decision. He had been in the temple the day before. He knows full well what he's doing. He is displaying righteous anger. So here is a a display of uh, the temple um, during Christ's time. And and right here you can you can see the court of the Gentiles. So the temple was kind of set up in, in stages and areas. So on the outside here, the Gentiles and the non-Jewish people could come. If you were interested in Judaism and you wanted to find out more, you could come into the temple and you could come into the, the court of the Gentiles, even if you were not a Jew. But that's as far as you could go. Then we have the court of women. So the Jewish people could come in in here, but this is as far as the women could go. And then we have the court of Israel. The men could come in here, but that's as far as they could go. Then we have the court of the altar, of the priests. So the priests could come in here, but that's as far as they could go. And then we have the holy place and the holy of holies. And the high priest could go in there, but he could only go in there once a year And he couldn't go in there without a sacrifice, without blood. So what's going on is, obviously they don't want to corrupt the temple, but who cares about the Gentiles? They've taken the place, which the Lord has said is supposed to be a house of prayer, and they've turned it into a marketplace. And so here's what's happening. Again, people were traveling from all over uh, to the Passover. Uh, and if you imagine that you're, you're traveling with your family and your kids and all your belongings, walking, maybe riding something, but most likely walking, dragging a, a sheep along with you probably wouldn't be your favorite thing in the world. You have to worry about feeding it, hoping it doesn't die on the way. So maybe some people went on the journey expecting when I get to Jerusalem, I will purchase my sheep there Uh, for an offering. So in and of itself, I don't think that that's wrong. Uh, Not a bad thing. But what is wrong with this situation is two things. First, it's the wrong place. This is the temple. This area where the Gentiles were allowed to come and should have been witnessing the true religion of the nation of Israel, they come and they find what? They find this marketplace. And not only that, they find that the religious leaders are ripping off their own people. What kind of testimony to the pagan world around them was this giving? And again, sadly, this too is not a foreign concept to us, is it, in our churches today? People come to church to find God, but instead they find a company, don't they? An organization seeking money to benefit themselves. Now, that's not true of all churches and all Christians, but it is true of some. But Christ says, you have taken my house of prayer and turned it into a den of thieves. They were ripping off the people. So, raise your hand if you have ever been to a theme park. Anybody ever been to Disney World, Great America, right? So, you've got to get there early, right? Because the lines are shorter. So, 9 a.m., through the doors, first onto the Batman ride, right? About noon, what happens? You get hungry. Now, that's not a problem, right? Because you pack sandwiches in your backpack. No, that's not allowed, is it? You can't bring food into, into the theme park. So now you have to buy their food, don't you? 
So you and your wife and your two kids, you go to the little hamburger place and you get two hamburgers, or you get four hamburgers and you get two things of fries and four bottles of water because you can't just get water, you have to buy water. And now you're paying $54.37 for your lunch, right? But you don't have a choice, do you? Because you can't get food anywhere else. I mean, you could get all your kids, go out of the park, walk four miles down the, uh, you know, the, the parking lot and find the McDonald's across the street and then come all the way back and you've wasted three hours of the $150 tickets that you've purchased for the day, right? Got to wait back in line with your stamps, get back in. But that's what's happening here. They get into the temple. Oh, you need a sheep with an offer for your offering? Oh, no problem. We got some sheep here. But instead of a, a providing a godly service, maybe outside the door of the temple to the people and saying, yeah, we have sheep uh, and, you know, for the, the cost that we bought them for, um, you know, we'll give you one. No. Oh, well, here's, here's got your sheep. You can buy it for your offering. And we're the only place that sells them, so... Hand it over. And what else was ha- was happening is is uh, they were supposed to bring uh, their money offering as well, right? Give their tithe to the Lord. But we don't accept Roman money; it's pagan. But if you go see Josephus over there, he'll exchange it for you. But it wasn't an even exchange. You give me your Roman money and we'll give you your Jewish money so you can give your offering, but we're going to make a pretty penny on this exchange. And what's so sad is it's the religious leaders of the nation of Israel that are allowing this and who are involved in this. And historians say that that during this time, during the Roman rule, that the position of the high priest was sold to the highest bidder by the Romans. So if you wanted to be in charge, you better have a lot of money and go see your friends the Romans and they'd make you the high priest. And then you got to be in charge of this business and you made even a lot more money. Is it no wonder that our Lord is so angry? This wasn't the first time it had happened either, is it? Early on in Jesus' ministry, he had done the same thing. But he is upset. And he quotes Isaiah 56, 7 through 8. He says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make, a joyful, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathered the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This temple was supposed to be an outpouring of God to all of the world. And they had corrupted it. says he was teaching them. In Luke 19 we find it says that he was teaching them daily in the temple. And the chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do 
for all the people were hanging on his words. Again, Mark says the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And the religious leaders are irate, aren't they? And they are looking for a way to get rid of him. Like, right now, get rid of him. But there's too many people around. So he taught them all day. And then verse 19 says, Then in the evening they came... Um, then when evening came, they went out of the city. So they head back again to Bethany, most likely, for the evening. Um, and we know that because in the morning they passed the fig tree again. So, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will come to pass and it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, forgive if the Father, if your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. First, let's look at the tree. Obviously, something substantial had happened to it, right? There weren't just a few brown leaves lying on the ground. It says that the tree had withered away to its roots. And the disciples are obviously astonished at this tree because something that doesn't occur overnight occurred. And Jesus tells them, You think that's amazing? You could do greater things than this. You could move mountains. And all you have to do is what? Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it and it will be, due, will be yours. Whatever. Does, does he really mean whatever here? And if you truly believe, if we, does he really mean that our prayers are only answered if we pray them with 100% undoubting faith? Is that even possible for us? The statement sounds so very absolute, doesn't it? Whatever you ask, if you believe it, it will be yours. Now there are a few reasons I don't think that we can take it to be me be the absolute statement that it appears to be at, at face value here. And first is a very simple one, um, and it's it's how language works and how words are defined. They're defined by their context, right? For instance, if we were having a get together at my house and I came into the room, people were gathered, and I said. Is everyone here? And everyone that I invited was here. Was there? Would that be an accurate... Someone said yes. Would that be an accurate question? I'm not asking, is everyone in the world here, am I? No, that's ridiculous. 
But if I tell you this morning that God loves everyone, I don't just mean us here, do I? I mean every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. I mean every man, woman, and child past and present. Because the Bible tells us that God loves everyone. So the same word in two different contexts mean two very different things. Very different scope. If we're ordering pizza and I say, you have any requests you'd like on your pizza? And you say, doesn't matter, I'll eat anything. You're not going to be okay if I then come and bring you a pizza covered in coal and razor blades, right? That's not what you meant. You didn't literally mean you could stick anything on this pizza and I'll eat it, right? Scott might, but the rest of us won't. You meant of the selections that Papa John has for toppings, you can choose from any of them because I will eat those. So first we must understand that, that words are defined by their context. So although the word here is whatever, and it does mean whatever, we have to figure out what whatever means. Did you follow that? All right. And how do we do that? Well, we look at the rest of Scripture. We see other times that similar statements are made. And the first is James chapter 4. Verses 2 and 3, he says this, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. It's pretty clear there, you do not have because you do not ask, right? So we can ask and we can have. But there's a condition. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. Pretty clear here, isn't it? What one of the conditions is with our Father. That your motives have to be right. I I could pray my heart out that the Lord would give me $10 million so I could buy myself a mansion and a couple dozen sports cars, but He's not going to do it, right? There's no way. Because that prayer is 100% completely selfish and self-centered. God's not going to answer that prayer. So first, our motives have to be correct. We can't be praying with selfish intention. And another is in 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. He says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we seek anything according, uh, according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So He says, we know this, we have confidence in this fact, that we can ask Him anything according to His will, and He hears us. And that we know that if He hears us, and He's heard whatever we ask, that we have what we ask. Not that we will receive it, but we already have it. It's answered. But there's a very important condition in there, isn't there? According to His will. The will of God. We must pray within the will of God. Some of that's easy to figure out. Obviously, we can't pray, Lord, let me walk into Walmart and steal all this stuff and not get caught, right? 
That's not the will of God. Lord, let me cheat on my spouse and not get caught. Not the will of God. But there are other areas in our life that it's hard to know what the will of God is, isn't it? These areas that we call gray areas and we can't always know what the will of God is. So how can we pray with 100 complete percent faith undoubting that God will answer our prayer if we don't know what His will is in that situation? That's why so often and, and rightly so we must pray, Lord, not my will, but Thine be done. And where do we get that prayer from? Christ, right? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying harder than any of us have ever prayed. He's sweating drops of blood. Father, let this cup pass from me. Do you think that Christ doubted the Father's ability to allow the cup to pass from Him? That's absurd. But He prayed what? Not my will, but Thine be done. It's not that when we pray, when I pray, sometimes, I don't believe God can do it. And this is something I've been struggling with for a while, and, and this has helped me a lot. I'm still struggling with it, but it's helped me. It's not that I don't believe God can't do it. It's that sometimes when I pray, there's a part of me that believes God won't do it. Are you with me with that? Have you been there? I know that my God is powerful, and I can pray to Him that He change this circumstance, that He save this person, that He heal this person, that He restore this marriage. But I find myself when I'm praying, doubting not that He can do it, but that He will do it. And I think that there's an aspect to where I need to check my heart and my attitude in this situation, but I don't know that this is wrong. Because for some reason there are circumstances in our life where God's grand, grand plan is beyond our comprehension. There are things that seem to be so ridiculous to us why God wouldn't answer it, and yet He doesn't. And, and it's because we can't see the bigger picture. It's because God is sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient, and we aren't. And so in circumstances where we can't know what the will of God is, the only thing we can do is pray, Lord, please do this, but not my will, Yours be done. So if we can't ever pray in full confidence with undoubting faith for something that we know God will answer yes, can we? is there anything that we can pray for that way? If we can't know what His will is? Are there things that we can know that are the will of God and we can pray with complete faith and know that He will answer it and He will answer it? Yes. I'll touch on a few. We could discuss some more. I think there's probably others. But here's a couple and we'll go through them quickly. God will save all who call upon Him. Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every man, woman, or child who has ever cried out to God for salvation, who has come to God and repented of their sins and said, Lord, save me, He has done it. He has never answered no. So you can, with 100% confidence, know that if you cry out to the Lord for salvation, He will answer. And He will say yes. And He will save you from your sins. 
If you were sitting there this morning and you haven't done that, if you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, if you haven't come to the point where you realize that you were dead in your sins and your trespasses and that Christ came and He died for those sins and He has provided the way for you to be forgiven and go to heaven and said, Lord, forgive me, save me. You can pray that prayer this morning and know without a shadow of a doubt that He will answer you. Amen? The second is this, that God fully intends to sanctify those of us that He has redeemed. 1 Thessalonians 4, says, 4 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. There is no doubt that God is at work in your life today if you are a believer, changing you, molding and shaping you more and more into His image. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to go to sleep tonight and tomorrow wake up and be the most godly man and woman on the face of the earth. That's not how it works. But you can pray every day that Christ will sanctify you, that He will be at work in your life, molding you and shaping you, and making you more like Himself. And you can pray that fully believing in His power and He will do it. Because we know it's His will for your life. Now that doesn't mean that your life is going to be easy. In fact, sometimes that prayer may bring things to your life that aren't easy. And so, sometimes that's why I'm afraid to pray it, to be honest with you. Another is that we know that if we seek Him first, He promises to supply all of our needs. Romans, or sorry, Matthew 6:30 says, "Do not be anxious, saying, "What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear?" For Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Philippians 4.17, Paul says, And God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. So you can know that what we need, God will provide. But just like that prayer, we need to define that word, need. Because what we as Christians in America think of as need is not what God thinks of as need. Because what you need to fulfill the will of God in your life may not be a house and a car and a comfortable income. Because there are men and women who have left all of that and gone overseas and lived in shacks in the jungles to fulfill the will of God. Some of them have had family members die from diseases. But God has given them what they need to fulfill His will. I don't want you to be discouraged this morning by prayer. Rather, I want you to understand that we do have a mighty God that we can come to. That, that as James 5 promises, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. But we must first recognize that our God knows better than we do. That He will always answer what is best for us according to His will to the praise of His glory. Now, I think um, I've, I was always kind of jealous of Benji when he spoke because he had all these great illustrations because he has 17 kids. <laughs> and now that I have a child, it's great because now I have illustrations. So, if I have Della with me and we're in the kitchen and uh, my wife's just done the dishes and there's a big 
beautiful, shiny knife on the table, and she does her favorite new thing to do. Want it, want it. I'm not going to give her that knife, right? But if instead I grab the pot and the big wooden spoon that she also loves and sit her on the floor and say, Here, Della, see, pot and spoon, you make food like Mommy. She sits there and she stirs. Taste it, taste it. Now, I have not answered her request, have I? Because I knew better for her. But have I fulfilled the desire of her heart? She wanted to play with something, right? And while she thought the knife would be fun, I knew better that the bowl and the spoon would actually be better because it doesn't involve the emergency room, right? (laughs) And like the nation of Israel... We just see the triumphal entry. They think that what they want is a king to deliver them from this temporary oppression, right? Overthrow the Romans because our life's terrible. And they miss the real reason that he's come because their spiritual state is more important than their physical state. And Christ came to die once for all, so that all of mankind could be delivered from slavery to sin. Now we have two minutes left. Actually, we are like 12 minutes over. Um, and I've come to the, the most difficult verse in our passage. So let's pray. Um <laughs> Verse 25 says, And whatever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. First, I want to draw a real simple conclusion from this. And it's this, that I think we can easily conclude that the prayer for revenge is not a valid prayer, right? If you begin your prayer, God, please smite, dot, 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 um, you've begun wrong. Because you cannot both pray, Lord, please smite, and forgive, can you? In fact, um, we see this in Luke 9. Uh, Jesus is rejected by a Samaritan village, and James and John ask Jesus, Lord, do you want us to pray that fire come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus says, you don't know what manner of spirit you're praying in. The Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. So you cannot both forgive someone and pray for their destruction. So that's an, e- an easy conclusion. But now on to the real question, right? The real question is, is my forgiveness from God dependent on me confessing and forgiving others first? Is there a way in which me harboring bitterness would not allow God to forgive me? Now there's a common belief among some churches, that sin can break our fellowship with God. And we could spend a lot of time defining what that means. But this morning, um, I want to share with you that it's my personal belief that that's not true. And let me tell you what I mean. I believe that Scripture teaches us very clearly, contrary to this, that we have been forgiven, that we have been redeemed, that we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, And that God tells us that He has separated our sins from us far as the east is from the west. 
that he has thrown them in the depths of the sea and that he will remember them no more. And I believe that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God. Not height, not depth, no angels, no principalities, no things present, nor things to come. And so at this moment, in every moment of my life, there is nothing that I believe that I can do to make God love me any more than He does right now. And there is nothing that I can do to make God love me any less than He does right now. Because at every moment of every day, He looks at me through the blood of His Son as redeemed and forgiven. And He loves me with the fullness of the love of the Godhead. And nothing I can do can change that. But let me tell you what I believe sin can do. Because sin is not a trifle thing. It is not to be taken lightly. It is destructive. And especially in this situation where we're talking about a root of bitterness, where I am unwilling to forgive a brother or sister. Man, a root of bitterness can dig down deep and it can be destructive in your life. It can destroy relationships. It has destroyed marriages, families, churches. And sin is that way. All sin is that way. Sin unchecked more often than not leads to other sin in a downward spiral. So let me not confuse you this morning and tell you that sin is not dangerous and not a light thing and not something that we need to have ever present on our mind confessing and turning from in our lives. Because we can, I believe, pull ourselves away from God if we are harboring uh, harboring bitterness, allowing sin to control our life. If we are not walking in the Spirit, but rather in the flesh. Or as John 1 says, we are walking in darkness rather than light. But I think what we must understand is it's not God who in those circumstances moves away. It's us. And that at any moment, if you are willing to turn from that sin and back to your relationship with God, He's right there. And He's already forgiven you. John 1, 7-9 says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have already been forgiven by the blood if we have come to it. So why must we confess? Why must I forgive my brother? Well, let me give you another short example from my daughter. So uh, another new thing that Della likes doing now is um, this. No daddy, no mommy. Yeah. I think she learned it from Owen, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's irrelevant here. So, um, And so, uh, off, when, when this happens, if Della says, no, Daddy, 
Mommy will correct her and say, Della, we don't say no to Daddy. Tell Daddy you're sorry. And then, in the cutest little face and expression ever, sorry, Daddy, you know, just kind of <laughs> melts your heart. And if I hadn't already forgiven her, there was no way I couldn't, right? But I don't need my two-year-old daughter to tell me sorry for me to forgive her, right? Do I? I've already forgiven her for saying no, Daddy, because I love her so much. And so, why does my wife insist that she tell me that she's sorry? Because we're teaching her to recognize sin in her life, right? And if we are not confessing our sin, we are not recognizing it in our life. And if we come to God in prayer and we have got a heart of bitterness towards one another, what does Christ say first? Get the plank out of your own eye. You cannot be praying in the Spirit if you're harboring bitterness. We need to close, but I want to touch on this real quick. It it may uh, have already come to your mind, but this is very similar to a parable we find in Matthew, isn't it? Of the unforgiving servant. Jesus tells a parable of of a rich man um, who calls in one of his servants who owes him a great deal of money. And he says, you know what, it's time to pay up. And the man pleads with him, I don't have the money. Please give me more time. I'll pay you back every cent. And the master has compassion on him. And instead of even giving him more time, he forgives him the debt, right? Forgives him the debt. Tells him to go on his way. Man, what could be better than that for that man that day? But what does the man do? He goes and he finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a small debt and he says, pay up! And when the man can't, he has him thrown in prison. And when the master finds out what happens, what's his response? He's upset, right? How can you who have been shown so much mercy turn around and not do the same thing? And that's the, that's the important thing that we must pull this from this verse this morning is that we have been forgiven so much that we have come to a God and said, God, I sin against you daily. Sin against an eternal God for which I deserve eternal punishment. And you have forgiven me. What right do I have not to forgive my brothers and sisters? None. I don't. We must forgive because we have been forgiven. It's not that we must forgive so that we can be forgiven. It's we must forgive because we have been forgiven. Let me close with this. The only reason that we can come into the presence of God and make our requests known to Him is because Christ has destroyed the wall of enmity between us and the Father. He took our sins upon Himself. So now we can boldly approach the throne of grace and make our requests known to the Father. And that's amazing! That temple, the veil was torn in two. No longer can only the high priest go in, but we are priests and we can come into the presence of the God Almighty and lay our request before Him. And if we are a people who are walking in the Spirit, in the light, if we are committed to the will of God in our lives and in our family and in this church, And if we pray, and we pray fervently, genuinely believing that God will work to the will of His glory, we will see mighty things happen. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man 
avails much. Father, I thank You this morning that we have been redeemed, that we have been forgiven, that You are the King, that You sit upon the throne. And it's not an earthly throne, it's an eternal throne. You're not just the King of the world, You're the King of the universe. You're the King of all space and time. And You sought fit to look down on us and to love us and to seek us and to forgive us and to buy us back. Father, I pray that that incredible truth would change everything about our lives. That we would seek You, that we would seek first the will of God, Your kingdom. Father, I pray that You would use this humble people to Your honor and Your glory. And again, we thank You so much this morning that we are forgiven. We pray this in Your precious and Your magnificent name. Amen.